Welcome once again to GreatAMovies.com. I'm Larry Lannon, your host for this. I do film reviews at LarryAndFishers.com, part of my Arts and Fishers podcast series. But the two gentlemen here write for GreatAMovies.com and also do some writing for FilmYap.com. Let me welcome Alec Toombs. Alec, it's great to see you again. Uh, Good to talk movies once again. Good to see you, Larry. Good to see you, Adam. And Adam Austin also is with us, another writer for GreatAMovies.com. Great to see you both have your Indiana University hats on. As we record this, IU's about to play basketball, so that's why. So good to see you, Adam. Good to see you, Larry. And we have lots to talk about. There, there's a lot of the movie scene right now, and it's interesting that normally in a normal year, this would be a bit of a downtime in films. We have some really important films that have been uh, rolled out in theaters on streaming services so i want to talk about a film all three of us have seen the film is judas and the black messiah Uh, i won't go into a lot of detail but it's it's about the black panthers in chicago in uh, the late 60s early 1970s and it's about a man who signed on to be a snitch, for better lack of a better word, uh, to basically infiltrate the group for the FBI. It was about his relationship with the leadership of that Black Panther movement and his re- this uh, snitch's relationship with his FBI handler. Uh, Martin Sheen plays uh, plays the the role of J. Edgar Hoover in what has to be one of the worst makeup jobs in the history of film, but he still somehow pulls off the the role very well. So I'm going to ask the two of you what you think of it. I think, Alec, you've just seen it more recently than the two of us. Your first impressions after seeing Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, I finished it about 15 minutes ago, and I'm uh, still a little uh, welled up from watching it. I was uh, I found it pretty moving and pretty powerful, and I think it's a very important film. So important, uh, I mean, important in a good or a bad way? Uh, important in that... Sadly, it's pertinent to a lot of things still going on in this country. If we listened to and worked with and respected these folks when they were asking for that, we would be a lot further along than we are right now. I think what struck me, and, and I was, I'm was i the oldest of the three of us, so I remember the Black Panthers when they were around. And they had a reputation for being an extremely violent organization. And they had that side of them. And it comes through in this film. But the film also talks about the other side of that, that, these African-American people were living in very uh, violent neighborhoods and sometimes, not always, but sometimes it was the police that fomented the violence. So you get a different perspective. The, the Black Panthers also did a lot of positive things. They put in breakfast programs for people who didn't have much to eat in these neighborhoods. They started. Uh, they were in the process of starting medical clinics before they were. Uh, the FBI went after them. So I think that there are some aspects of this film where you you learn more about the Black Panthers, having lived through that as as, as somebody who was in the news business, watching uh, the wire service every day, working at a radio station. You got one view of the Black Panthers. This is a much different view. Adam, I'm really curious as to what you uh, think about this film. That's one thing that's really important when looking at this film is a lot of people have preconceived notions about who and what the Black Panthers uh, are or were. Uh, a lot of that, I'm wondering, was a, a misinformation campaign led by the FBI. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover wanted to discredit this organization and paint them as a violent militant group. And certainly they did things that warranted that reputation, but the other side of the story was never really shown on the news or uh, in a lot of history books about them doing lunch programs and helping people. 
we only got the other side of the story. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was not a great man. Uh, he did a lot of big things, um, but uh, it's actually a shame to this day that we have buildings named after J. Edgar Hoover, considering what he did to civil rights leaders, um, underhanded, uh, extra governmental tactics. Uh, he's been suspected being behind assassinations and not to spoil the end of this movie, but what happened to Fred Hampton could be described as an assassination, plain and simple. Um, they found out that uh, the gunshots that were allegedly shot by the Black Panthers were actually nail holes that were already in the building. Uh, so this is an example of where uh, just putting him in jail wasn't good enough, as they said in the movie. They needed to silence him permanently. Uh, hence the title, the uh, the Black Messiah. Uh, they wanted him to uh, uh, be a martyr uh, for the cause, I suppose. One thing I wanted to point out about this movie that is really interesting acting-wise is we talk about the different sides of the Black Panthers and the reputation. Uh, this isn't a movie that portrays everyone as this is the good guy and this is the bad guy. Uh, there are shades of gray with all of these characters. I actually thought it was a little better than the trial of the Chicago seven in that point, because that was a little more didactic with, you know, archetypes. Uh, this one, uh, no man is a hundred percent good or a hundred percent evil with the exception of Jager Hoover. He might be, uh, I don't, we don't see a lot of redeeming factors of him in the movie, but even the FBI agent played by Jesse Plemons, who you distrust at first, you see shades of him knowing that the, the prejudice is wrong and disagreeing with Hoover. So he's not a, he's a complicated figure as well. The uh, informant who betrays Fred Hampton, played masterfully by Lakeith Stanfield, um, he has a complicated history there, too. And uh, you kind of feel for him as well while he's being manipulated. And uh, Fred Hampton, he's being pulled in different directions uh, in the movie as well. And uh, Daniel Kaluuya uh, will probably get another Oscar nomination. He was previously nominated for Get Out. Uh, I think they're trying to get him in supporting actor category where he might have a better chance. Uh, he did get a Golden Globe nomination in that category. But he gives a great performance. Lakeith Stanfield gives a great performance. So does Jesse Plemons. All three of them, I think, are underrated actors um, that every time they're in a movie, they soar. And I uh, hope to see more of them in more roles. Yeah, Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya definitely had uh, shines in this film. As does all the Jesse Plemons has always been an underrated supporting actor. Uh, I think he's been he's had so many really juicy roles, and when he gets that role, he really makes the most of it. And uh, and I would say the writing, the screenwriting in this film is is excellent. So let's go around and just kind of give a final uh, view on that. I use letter grades. I gave this uh, film a B plus, uh, a big uh, recommendation to see it. So Alec, uh, your recommendation. Having just watched it right now, my gut reaction would be to give it four and a half out of five stars or an A grade. Adam, your view. I gave it four out of five on uh, Film Yap when I reviewed it. Uh, that, that's about a, a B, B-plus grade. Um, and yeah, I agree with you guys. It is uh, The acting is really what makes this movie soar. Uh, Story-wise, there were a few things where it felt a little episodic at times. And it could have been a little more cohesive in its narrative. Uh, but it was a, it's a new young director that is going to have those faults. But despite any uh, misgivings about anything in the movie, uh, I think it's definitely one that you should put on your to-watch list. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a perfect film, but it's a very good film, and that's why I gave that a B plus. And and I would recommend people see it. You you will learn if you've never um, if you have no conception of the Black Panthers before seeing this film, you'll get a better view of what it was like. If you had the preconceptions I had as an older guy, having lived through that era, I think it will open your eyes to some different aspects of them. They weren't perfect either, and neither was uh, the FBI or the Chicago police. Alec has a final comment. Adam brought up the trial of Chicago seven in relation to this movie. It, they would make an interesting uh, pairing or double bill. If you haven't seen them both, they kind of intertwine in ways. So, well, this Fred Hampton is in both movies, yes, right? Fred and Fred they Fred. referenced Bobby Seale numerous times in uh, Judas and the black Messiah. So I think the big difference between the two is that uh, trial of Chicago seven was adapted from a, a stage play and it does have that stagey feel, although they, they did their best to get away from that. Uh, I, I, I do think the black the, the Judas and the Black Messiah is a little bit more made for the screen. So that may be the biggest difference between the two. I think they're both very good films. I'm going to spend a moment to talk about a film that uh, Adam and Alec have not yet seen. They're going to see it soon. Uh, my wife Jane and I sat down and watched Nomadland yesterday, the day before we record this. On a Friday, we're recording this on Saturday morning. The date is February 20th. Every now and then, a film comes across that just blows you away. I don't, that only happens to me maybe every two or three years. This is one of those films, in my view. I don't give many films an A+. I'm going to give Nomadland an A+. I'm going to tell you why. First of all, <clears throat> and Adam knows this, I was a very big fan of the film The Writer, and, and Chloe Zhao was the director of that film. That was a very very inventive, creative, different film because it used no professional actors at all. It just featured these people that work in, and, and ride horses and rodeos all throughout South Dakota. What we have here is one of the greatest actors of our era, Francis McDormand, who comes on this, this character and just blows you away with her portrayal of Fern. Fern is a story... That is is, is uh, the story of many Americans. I think it should be noted that many films are made from books. This was made from a non-fiction book. This was about the new nomads of America, the people who have lost their jobs, maybe lost a spouse, lost a child. They've had trauma in their lives, maybe more than one way. And they become nomads. They live in their RVs. In Fern's case, she lives in her van and she goes from place to place she gets temporary jobs she works every year at an amazon warehouse during christmas time the job is done she gets in her van and she moves on she picks up other little jobs along the way as you see in this film and there there are other people who are nomads they cloister in these these uh, communities that pop up and, and also what's good is that uh, Daniel, uh, David Stratham plays a supporting role here, played a, a, a character named David, uh, which becomes a very prominent part of the, of, of the story. But there are non-professional actors. There's a fellow named Bob who really did run one of these communities for nomads. Uh, and there are some others who just were nomads and were picked up by Chloe's daughter to, to uh, play uh, a part in this film. This is a film revealing a new, different America. What is happening to people who are my age, 
who have lost a spouse, lost a job, they still want to work. They want to be somebody. They want to continue to work. And some of them have physical issues. Fern's got problems with her knees, but she works through it. She still does all these jobs. And some of them require, particularly at Amazon, require some physical uh, work that you're going to be doing. So I give this film an A+. It, why I think this is such an important film is because it tells a story that has not been told. I would almost put this, it's not uh, uh, as good as a Florida, it's better than the Florida Project. The Florida Project, and Adam and I talked about this uh, on our podcast years ago, that that portrayed uh, child poverty in a way that nobody really thinks about. It's not these kids' fault that they're in poverty, their parents are a mess. But it tells that story on how at some point the government does intervene, but it takes a while. And it's not easy to leave your mother, even if your mother is is a mess of a person. In this film, it's these mess of a people who are older and are trying to deal with this trauma. There's a man uh, whose son committed suicide and is trying to deal with that. Fern lost her husband, kept a job at this gypsum plant where they it was not in the middle of nowhere in Nevada. They provided housing for these people. Well, when the gypsum uh, mine closed, the housing closed. And at the very end of the film, I'm not giving much away here, the end of the film is where she goes back to the gypsum mine, totally abandoned, looks at the mine, goes back to the house where she and her husband lived for years, and just looked out the back window where you see this long desert and mountains in the back. Uh, and again, this is a film which, and I've, I've uh, my daughter lives in South Dakota, I've done some driving around South Dakota, recognize some of the places that uh, were featured in this film amazing cinematography and the pictures that you see uh, the visuals that you get are a big part of this film telling the story so i give this an a plus i don't give many films an a plus i'm anxious to hear what the two of you think of it when you see it this is one of those films that only comes around every now and then and chloe zhao is is uh, if she doesn't get a best director nomination and in my view from the films i've seen so far should get the oscar for best director that's how big I am on this film. So anxious to hear what you gentlemen are going to say about We're it. Seeing it in IMAX, which I haven't been to a theater since Tenet. And uh, actually, you can watch Nomadland right now on Hulu. So part of me was like, well, I could just watch it. I already have a Hulu subscription. But as you say, that I've been hearing so many good things about this film that I think it's going to warrant seeing it on a big screen. Yeah, and there was a special uh, deal with the, showing this on IMAX theaters around America. I can see why. I'm kind of sorry I didn't. I mean, I saw it on a fairly big screen at home, but nothing like seeing it on even a theater screen, much less an IMAX screen. You, so I'm, you I'm, watched on your Apple Watch? <laughs> yeah, there's one. You know, that's one thing about kids today, watching watching films on their phones, but now they're watching it on their watch? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> do that. I'm just making sure. Just a small <laughs> story. Dick Tracy or somebody with a slick watch, man. Yeah, you know, I grew up with that Dick Tracy story. Now it's 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 reality, right? People are communicating through their watches now. Okay, gentlemen, I've uh, said my piece on Nomad Land. Anxious to hear what you have to say about it in a later podcast and uh, video that we'll have later. Alec, I'm going to ask you to take it over. You've seen a lot of films. I've just uh, produced a few of your uh, recent. Uh, reviews. I'm very anxious for you to talk about the films you've seen lately. Sure. Um, I've published three reviews so far this week. Um, the movie I was hottest on is called uh, Body Brokers. It uh, stars 
Jack Kilmer, son of Val Kilmer and Joanne Wally. Um, he looks a lot like his old man, and uh, he acts pretty well, too. Um, he plays a uh, heroin addict in Columbus, Ohio, who is recruited into rehab by a character played by Michael Kenneth Williams, who you may remember as Omar from The Wire. Um, a lot of good actors in this movie. Melissa Leo's in it. Uh, Frank Grillo. Uh, thought it was a really good movie about how treatment facilities are bilking insurance companies out of money and not to the benefit of their patients. So that was a good, important movie. That's interesting you mentioned that because I've had people close to me who have had these addiction issues and some, and they, some of them go, go through many different addiction programs. So when you see this film, what do you come out of that film learning about that whole addiction industry or process? I mean, it seems as though when, when the treatment's applied correctly, it, it's certainly useful, but unfortunately there's a lot of people taking advantage of the situation. Curing you doesn't, uh, doesn't help their bottom line. So if they can get you there and get you back in, um, unfortunately, uh, that seems to be an occurrence that happens all too often. So what else have you been seeing lately? Uh, another film I reviewed was called The Violent Heart. It's kind of loosely inspired uh, by Romeo and Juliet. It uh, stars a young actor who I like a lot, uh, Jovan Adipo. You may remember him as uh, Denzel Washington and Viola Davis's son in Fences. He was also in a uh, horror action movie from a few years back that I enjoyed quite a bit called Overlord. J.J. Uh, Abrams produced that. He was also on HBO's Watchmen, playing the younger version of Louis Gossett Jr.'s character. Um, he's the Romeo in the story to Grace Van Patten's Juliet. Um, she was in Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories a few years ago, playing Adam Sandler's daughter. Uh, two of them are kind of star-crossed lovers. He's older than her. He's African-American. African-American, she's white. Um, he has a criminal past, and her parents don't want them to be together. It, uh, it's kind of a cheesy movie, I thought, somewhat. Very melodramatic. Um, but I think the two central performances elevate the material. And I know you've seen at least one other film. Let's talk about that. Sure. The, the last movie I've reviewed so far this week is called Burn It All. It's uh, by a Seattle-based filmmaker named Brady Hall. Uh, he's made a few other films. Uh, it's kind of an interesting movie. It's, it's very um, sloppily made. Like uh, some of the acting is almost like community theater level, and uh, some of the filmmaking and editing and stuff kind of kind of scrappy and loose. Uh, Hall takes a lot of different responsibilities on the film. He is a uh, the writer, director, uh, cinematographer, editor, and composer of uh, the movie. Um, it's about a young woman who returns to her hometown after her mom passes away. Uh, her mom's body has been stolen by an organ harvesting ring, and she makes it her mission to uh, dismantle this criminal organization. Well, you know, when you do everything on a film, it's hard to do it all well. So maybe it's uh, <laughs> it's not a surprise. Yeah, some, that... some of the sloppiness actually kind of worked for it. It kind of made it feel like a 70s grindhouse movie. Um, it also kind of reminded me of the... Uh, action movies this this lady cynthia rothrock appeared in in the 80s and 90s very low budget uh women just beating up bad dudes kind of entertaining this movie is supremely feminist some of the dialogue is insane um but uh i think it's cool that this guy uh brady hall made a movie uh elevating women and kind of owning up to the shortcomings of men 
So you're you're saying two and a half. I'm sorry, two and a half stars. So you are you're in the middle on it. Adam, go ahead. I was going to ask about this really terrible but enjoyable Nicolas Cage movie that you watched, Willie's Wonderland, which yeah, I, I don't think like myself to watch it, but you sounded like it was a, a fun ride. I love Nicolas Cage. He gives an interesting performance in the movie. He doesn't speak a single word the entire movie, so he's he's silent. He's <laughs> It's him versus possessed animatronic robots at a Chuck E. Cheese-esque restaurant. Um you know if it's for you or not. If you've been to Chuck E. Cheese or Showbiz Pizza, if you've ever played the game, uh, game uh, Five Nights at Freddy's, a video game, it's very uh, highly inspired by that. Uh, if you like Nicolas Cage and his uh, particular brand of cheese these days, uh, it's likely something you'll enjoy. I did, but Is I can't. The over-the-top, like that one mom and dad movie or The Wicker Man or any of that? I mean, so much of Cage's over-the-top antics uh, are spurred by his voice and by his delivery. The fact that he doesn't uh, speak a word in the movie kind of makes it a different performance. Physically, he does interesting things. He dances. He plays pinball. He's addicted to, like, what's essentially Joe Cola. It's kind of like, to him, what uh, spinach is to Popeye. He uses the power up and, and fight these possessed animatronic robots. You know, I, I'm so sorry that uh, Nick Cage never got the chance to play Superman. You know, that was in the works at one time. And also, yeah. I think, you know, one of his latest uh, uh, roles that I liked so much was when he played the CIA geek at the Edward Snowden film. I thought that was one of the, it was a very small part, but he, as always, he makes the best of it. Okay, Adam, it's your turn. I understand you saw a film called Music You Can't Wait to Talk About. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll get to some, some good movies later. Let me just get into this one first. So last episode, we talked about the Golden Globe nominations, and uh, we had some not-so-kind words about the nominees in the best comedy or musical category. It was either we hadn't seen them or we thought, well, I mean, Palm Springs was probably the best one of that bunch. I love Palm Springs, man. No, it, it's, it, that's a good movie. Um, but, uh, the prom was nominated Hamilton, which is not a movie. Uh, and then we had music, which most of us had never heard of. So I read an article about this movie. Um, right now there is an uproar because the movie portrays a young girl with autism. And a lot of people thought that role should have gone to a girl who was actually, actually autistic. They said it was an offensive performance. Uh, and they cited a lot of films like Rain Man and Forrest Gump and I Am Sam by Sean Penn. Uh, people talked about uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. and radio. I'm just here to say, whatever you thought about those other performances, put those aside. Those were all Oscar nominated for something at some point in their life. Actors who are immensely talented. You can throw in other people like Billy Bob Thornton and and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who've played characters with disabilities and have done it with varying degrees of success. So there is a debate about whether you have to be disabled to play the role. Let's put that aside for a second. This particular performance, played by this young girl named Maddie Ziegler, whose resume mostly is dancing and music videos by Sia, who is the Australian pop star who's making her directorial debut with this movie, uh, and Sia has a lot of confidence in her directing and writing and producing and writing the songs for this movie. This young girl plays a performance that is so offensive 
it feels like she's mocking people with disabilities. Uh, she contorts her face and yells out groans. It is like Ben Stiller's character in Tropic Thunder doing Simple Jack. I kid you not. It would be funny to laugh at how terrible this was if you weren't so offended. Like, I, you can't even watch this. It's It boggles your mind that a human being would do this and think, this is a great performance. So Sia, who is known mostly for her music, uh, writes this film. And then she decides, all right, well, we got to mix this up a little bit. What if I make it a musical? And her concept was she'd have these bright candy-colored music video dance sequences that would show what's like in the mind of someone with autism. Because in her mind, she was talking about how people with autism are actually very um, mentally aware, but just can't express themselves because of their communication skills and their body holding her back. So she has these songs, which are very patronizing uh, about body don't fail me now. Uh, and you have her dancing around this young girl in a, it looks like one of those Target ads or Old Navy ads where it's just like an abstract colors or maybe something out of the Nickelodeon show, Yo Gabba Gabba. It was so bad, I could not look at the screen. I felt so uncomfortable. Think of those moments in the TV show, The Office, where Michael Scott is doing something so offensive or uncomfortable that you're like cringing. It's hard for you as the viewer to watch it. Imagine that for a two-hour film. Like, it, it was in. It was hard to watch. And then you get to the actual story and the story is just a cliche uh, story about, uh, okay, this young girl, her name is music. So it's just like radio. Her name is music because she listens to music on her headphones all day. Her grandmother passes away and her half sister, who is a former drug addict and still drug dealer, but she apparently still gets guardianship of this young girl, even though she's a drug dealer. Um, played by Kate Hudson. And when you're thinking you want to rough around the edges, drug addict, drug dealer, you think about Kate Hudson. She's the perfect person to cast for that. Um, Kate Hudson, either they're trying to make her look like she's like this drug dealer. So they shave her head. That's the all they do. And they have her walking around like in a wife beater or tank top or whatever you call it all the time. So you see a lot of her body. Um, Kate Hudson is not crackhead skinny. She's does Pilates three times a day skinny. She's got a six pack abs and toned muscles. She doesn't look like a drug addict. Uh, and she doesn't act like one either. One of the worst scenes in the movie is when Kate Hudson's character goes to deal drugs uh, at this fancy office and brings along the music and turns out it's Sia in a cameo playing herself buying drugs from Kate Hudson. And she says, Sia comes out and says, hey, I need to buy some, some Percocets and Mollies and illegal drugs, sounding like an undercover narc who doesn't know what drugs are in the first place. And uh, when she buys these drugs, her excuse is, I'm taking it to third world countries to give to kids in need. I'm calling it pop stars without borders, yo. And uh, this crazy thing about this scene, Larry, is I wouldn't put it past Sia to actually do something like that. Here is a director with so much confidence that she makes every wrong decision in this movie. Well, you it know, I, I, have, my mind. I, haven't, I haven't seen this film uh, 
Adam, but it doesn't sound like I've missed, missed much of anything. So <laughs> I think your recommendation is to stay as far away as possible from this film. You know, I know parents who have children with autism, and I'm sure this film would just infuriate them from everything you've said. And here's what happened, too. So she got criticized on Twitter, Sia, for this movie. She started attacking the people with autism on Twitter who raised concerns about the film, saying, F you, you must not know anything about movies. I had awesome intentions. Well, <laughs> in, digging in, herself deeper. <laughs> based on what you're saying, intentions may be one thing, but reality is another. Holy cow. Well, thank you for the warning on music. And doesn't it say something about the Golden Globes? We still don't even know who these people are, for the most part, who are in this Golden Globe community. How in the world could they fete a film like that? It is it's mind-boggling, this movie. Um, interesting note, the, the lead, Maddie Ziegler, she hasn't had many acting roles, but she did have a small role in the 2017 film, The Book of Henry. And if you remember what I thought about that film, Larry, uh, <laughs> The Book of Henry, she's got a great track record of picking the right roles. So, uh, Alec, I assume you've not seen music yet. No, but I'm dying to after Adam's glowing review. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, uh. I, it's hard, you can't even laugh at it because it's, it's offensive. It's, it is basically the equivalent of Trump talking about the New York Times reporter as an actual acting impersonation. Okay, let's get off music and go to your next <laughs> film, if you don't mind, Adam. So, uh, speaking of the Golden Globes, there was one film that didn't get nominated there that a lot of people expected, and that was Minari. Uh, A24's uh, big push for Oscar love, and it had been getting a lot of love in a lot of other critics' associations. Uh, it is a story of a uh, Korean family who moves to rural Arkansas to start a farm. And it's their version of trying to take the American dream. Um, Stephen Yoon, who you might know from uh, The Walking Dead, but he's been in some films like Burning, um, he plays the lead role of the father of the family. And uh, it's a really sweet story. Uh, there's a nice relationship between the children and the grandmother. Um, it is mostly in Korean, although it is an American production. And I would say an American story. Uh, the Golden Globes didn't give it much love. Partially, Stephen Yoon had some uh, critical things to say about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. But they categorized it as a foreign language film, even though it was an American-made production, because... They are speaking a foreign language in most of the movie. As a result, it was not eligible for the best drama category. They don't let someone be in the best foreign language category and be in best drama category. Uh, a similar thing happened a few years ago to The Farewell, another A24 uh, film starring Aquafina that, again, American-made but had a, a foreign language as its main spoken language. Minari is a very good film. I don't mean to undersell it. I was a little disappointed because of the hype surrounding it. Um, I don't think it was as great as some have said, but I still enjoyed it. I gave it three and a half out of five stars, so maybe a B minus. Uh, so I wouldn't have put it in my top ten list, but it was good. Um, I also um, watched a few kids' movies, uh, one terrible, one great. Uh, I watched this Studio Ghibli if you know of them, they are the famed Japanese animation studio that did Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, um, My Neighbor Totoro, Kiki's Delivery Service, Howl's Moving Castle. 
Um, all of these beloved films, they have a new one that's out and it's their first foray into uh, computer generated animation. And it is an ugly looking movie. I gave it one star on Film Yap. Uh, it does not go up to the standards. It is, usually their films are aesthetically beautiful to look at. This one looks like uh, the general from the uh, auto insurance commercials, that little CGI guy. That is the level of animation that they have in this movie. Uh, and the story itself is pretty weak. Uh, I could not recommend this one. Um, I did watch on HBO Max uh, the We Bear Bears movie, another kid's film with my daughter. This one I actually really, really liked. Even if you don't have kids, you might think it's funny. Uh, it's, it basically serves as the series finale to this TV show that's on Cartoon Network that's built up a cult following about a panda bear, a grizzly bear, and a polar bear who are roommates. But what makes it funny for adults is they have references to things like food trucks and hipster culture. There was one episode of the show where they were obsessed with going viral on the internet and trying to create videos on YouTube to go viral. Uh, but even though it has humor for the adults, it never gets inappropriate or vulgar. So kids can still watch it. You could watch it with your young kid. They may not get the references, but they're not going to repeat anything that will embarrass you at Thanksgiving, which is good. Yeah, I think that, uh, Adam, you've got a two-year-old daughter. You have many years ahead of you of watching children's films. And, uh, of course, I've got a six-month-old grandson, so I think I'll be getting into that again at some point it's, uh, to some extent. But uh, what I found years ago, and I think it's still true today, there's a wide variety in, of quality when you get into kids. Somewhat terrific. There was one uh, TV producer that uh, said something about children's fair, whether it be TV or film. They said, if you can get the kids to watch, fine. If you can get the kids and the mom to watch, that's really great. But if you can get the kids, the mom, and the dad to watch it, because there's enough adult things in there the kids wouldn't understand, but you would, that's when you've got to hit kids' film. And people say that Rugrats, which was a big uh, thing for kids when I, my kids were young, uh, Rugrats was a, was a TV series that did just that. And I watched it, and I could see, I, I laughed a lot in that, that TV series. And, uh, and some of the films that they saw, I could see were, were they wanted to get not just the moms, but the dads to where they could watch it as well. But uh, no, you've got some years ahead, and some of them are great. Some of them you'll, I have to tell you, some of them I actually slept through at the movie theater, but that's another matter. Um, okay, anything else, Adam, you want to talk about as far as films you've seen? Okay, um, I'm just going to give each of you a chance to maybe make a final comment. Uh, Alec, anything you want to say before we wrap this up? Adam, what was the name of that Studio Ghibli movie again? Um Earwig and the uh, Witch or something like that. I mean, my takeaway from this episode is it sounds like I need to do a double bill of music in the Earwig and then go commit seppuku in my backyard afterwards. It well, <laughs> it's strange because when I offered reviews of both of them to Chris Lloyd at the Film Yap, he didn't have them on his budget. <laughs> and he was like, if you want to review these, go ahead. Uh, every once in a while, we got to have a couple one-star uh, stinkers in there. So, by all means. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Oh my gosh, that is really funny. Um, 
Anything else, Alec, before we uh, wrap it up? Here? Uh, I didn't review these movies, but uh, uh, last this past week, while it was all snowy, I watched two foreign films on Netflix, both dealing with cold weather. Um, and I thought both were pretty good. One is called Below Zero. It's a Spanish film. Uh, kind of feels like Con Air meets Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, there's a prison transport bus that's stuck in cold conditions. Uh, I found the movie pretty entertaining. Uh, another movie as well, I believe this one is Swedish, called Red Dot, where a couple are hiking in the mountains and a laser sight on a gun is fixed fixed on them, and they're trying to figure out who is trying to kill them and trying to escape this murderer. You know something? I, I tend to watch films that are set in cold weather when it's warm outside. <laughs> I don't, you know, when it just exacerbates things when it's cold. And I remember, the, the, the speaking of Frances McDormand, again, the first film I really remember seeing her excel in was Fargo. And I watched Fargo when I was down in Florida. It was about 90 degrees outside. It made it a lot more tolerable because there was sure. a lot of cold weather in Fargo. The I can film. quote Fargo pretty much from beginning to end. It's I don't a, know. This was kind of neat, Larry. It felt 4D to me. Like I watched one movie. I went out and shoveled a little bit more. I came back inside. I watched more cold. I don't know. It was it was very immersive. <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I'm glad it worked for you. So, Adam, uh, final thoughts before we wrap it up. We watched two other movies recently that, um, well, I watched one and we watched, I watched one with my daughter that are not new releases, but both were very good. We got them from the Carmel Clay Library, which you can always get uh, DVDs and Blu-rays there. One is a kid's movie, Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, it's actually a really nice tale uh, done by the same studio that did uh, The Book of Life and Box Trolls and Paranorman. Uh, very interesting looking animation, great music, good story. Recommend that one for kids and parents will enjoy it as well. Uh, and then uh, not with my daughter, I watched a uh, Danish film by the same director who did Another Round. Uh, I hadn't seen his previous work, but uh, The Hunt starring Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, it is the story of a man who is falsely accused of molesting a child and his whole life unravels. Uh, it is not a fun movie to watch. But the acting is superb, and uh, it, the movie does progress, so you're not bored the whole way through. It is a very interesting film uh, that makes you think, but not one that uh, definitely makes you happy at the end, I suppose. Yeah, speaking of the Carmel Library, I was my wife and I got Carrie out from Donatello's the other day, and I was driving right by, and the Carmel Clay Library is under reconstruction. It's being remodeled. Uh, looks like it's going to be a terrific facility once uh, it is finished. I just want to say uh, one one film I am looking forward to seeing is the USA versus uh, Billy Holiday. And what I might recommend people do before they see that film, which I understand is is a pretty good film, from what I've read uh, at least uh, now, it's not going to be it's not going to be available I think till later in the month. But uh, what I would recommend you do is go back and watch a film, rent it from the library where you can find a stream where you can find it. Lady Sings the Blues, which is uh, starring Diana Ross, where she plays the the character of Billie Holiday, uh, uh, kind of her life story. And it's pretty clear in that film that Billie Holiday had drug issues like a lot of musicians did, white and black and other uh, backgrounds. When you're when you're on the road most of the, the year, that's a tough life, and a lot of people pick up drug addictions. And uh, how the USA went after Billie Holiday because they were unhappy about some of the film, some of the uh, songs that she was singing. And uh, anyway, that's 
that's something I'm looking forward to seeing, and, and it will be available later on in the month. I thought you were going to say that you wanted to watch that Tom and Jerry movie that's coming out. Uh, you know, live. Did you see that? I, I think I did see it's coming out, but I thought that was going to be more your uh, <laughs> you and your daughter than uh, perhaps me and my grandson Tom, later. Anyone who watched Tom and Jerry knows that it's not meant for kids. It is super violent. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I think I'd rather have her watch the new Mortal Kombat movie than Tom and Jerry because they're probably equal levels of violence. You know, uh, Tom and Jerry, remember the Roadrunner? <laughs> that was a violent, uh, uh, that thing was violent. But, you know, one uh, series I saw as a kid, and I watched it later in life, Mighty Mouse. And I thought, wow, there's some really st- <laughs> adult themes in that thing that most kids wouldn't understand. So you're right, Adam. There are a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of old cartoons I grew up watching and had no idea half of what was being discussed in that. Another yeah, was Tom well, and Jerry are chasing each other with butcher knives. I'm like, yes. uh, maybe this isn't for kids. I, I remember that. That was a scene we saw many times in uh, Tom and Jerry. Uh, another one was uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. There was a lot of adult humor in that. I watched that growing up as a kid. And in fact, there was a movie made. It wasn't a great movie, but there was a movie made uh, later about uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, a feature-length film. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. I see uh, Alec has something he wants here. The movie we were just speaking about, Larry, The United States versus Billie Holiday, will be available on Hulu beginning this Friday, February 26th. I knew it was later later in the month, so it's going to be uh, within a a few days of of, of this being recorded. So I would highly recommend you see it. I I don't know if it's going to be available in the movie theaters right away, but it will be on Hulu. But if you want to see it in a movie theater, watch your local listings. And if you have Hulu. Keith Stanfield's in it. I didn't That's right. That. That's right. You know, Hulu. I was never a big fan of Hulu. There wasn't much on there that I really cared to see. But they're getting into the the, the movie business now. They're they're competing with Netflix and with uh, Amazon Prime, and some of the other players. We're seeing Peacock, NBC is involved there. They have so. that Disney money. Oh, <laughs> yes, Disney they owns Hulu. They certainly do. And yeah, so you knew. I mean, I, I thought Hulu was going after a different audience, and maybe it wasn't me. But now I'm seeing that they're expanding that a group of people they want. And I think this is, I would like it to ask each one of you, you have a little time left here. I think at this point in time that consumers are sort of at a crossroads when it comes to viewing anything at home, films or, or any kind of television fare, because people are cutting the cord on cable. All right, and it's just so expensive. I think I understand why. And you're paying, you buy cable, you're paying for so many channels you never watch. I think that's the biggest complaint people have about cable today. But now, as we get to these streaming services, we have Netflix, we have Amazon Prime, we have Hulu, and there t- Peacock. There are tons of other. Peacock has a free option and a paid option, for example. So, how do you think this is going to shake out? How will this impact? Uh, the quality or the types of of films we're, we're going to see in the future as they're marketed in different ways. Like Adam's thought on that. Well, first off, I don't know if all these streaming services are going to survive. I think the most consumers probably have a personal limit beyond money, just not having to navigate through them. Someone's like, I will have no more than four or five streaming services, which is a lot. So when you have CBS All Access and Peacock, and Paramount has a new one coming out. That's what CBS is going to become. They're like merging into one. And then they've got uh, 
Discovery ID has one too. So if you're really like you're like my mom, and you're really into serial killers, then you gotta watch that when you fall asleep. Or Guy Fieri. Guy Fieri, yeah. It's Part just of that. it's just nonstop. That you know, somebody is gonna get rich when they come up with something where like a movie pass, uh, where I can pay one fee and get all of the streaming services in one spot, even if it's like sixty, seventy dollars a month. That would be genius, and I, I would pay for that. Um, by the way, isn't there like a, there's a movie past documentary coming out? Alec posted something about, so we'll see a story of the rise and fall of that uh, ahead of its time or ill uh, ill thought out uh, business venture which failed pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm anxious. I still haven't seen the blockbuster last blockbuster film that you talked about, Adam. I'm anxious to see that. So. Alec, as consumers make decisions about streaming services as they exist today, how do you think that will impact the quality, quantity, and just the types of uh, films we're going to see in the future? I am happy that a lot of these streaming services seem to be giving money uh, and uh, a voice and freedom to artists to make projects they want to make. Um, Unfortunately, it does seem like a lot of these things are kind of more disposable when they're on a streaming service, if they're not advertised properly or if they're not featured on the banner head of a page, people will be talking about it maybe for the first weekend or week it's out, but then it kind of disappears into the ether. Um, I'm glad to have these options. I'm glad to still be able to go to a movie theater. Um, It does sometimes get a little overwhelming having so many choices. Um, I'm kind of picking and choosing which apps uh, I uh, subscribe to. Some friends are nice enough to give me passwords where if occasionally I want to jump on there, I can, or I'll, you know, a lot of people switch back and forth, I'm sure. So we're all just doing the best we can and uh, trying to keep it as honest as possible. You know, I agree with you, uh, Alec. It's giving some artists a chance to show their wares where they wouldn't maybe have that within the Hollywood system as it existed before. But here's the thing that bothers me, and I think all the streaming services are like this. I interviewed somebody when we did Hamilton County Goes to the Movies. Adam wasn't there because it was at a Carmel Film Festival. And I was interviewing this fellow who's a producer of film. And he was telling me that Netflix doesn't tell anybody, including the people who are producing these the, the products, the films, they don't tell you how many people are watching. Netflix knows. You don't know. So you're at a decided disadvantage if, for instance, you're doing a series or a film on Netflix and you want to do another one, you have no idea how well or how poorly your film or series did before. Netflix knows, and so they have a huge advantage uh, in that whole process. And I'm thinking the other streaming services are likely like that as well. So uh, I think that's that's a sad thing to see. Adam, you one have other something. note. I don't think there's any incentive to edit things down. You have things like The Irishman that are three and a half hours long. Uh, Larry went to a theater because he has a strong bladder and can sit for three and a half hours, but most of us can't. But at home, like, I don't think Netflix cares. Like, hey, this is a really long movie. Hey, you want your documentary to be in five parts, even though it probably could have been two hours and not six hours. We don't care. Just we need content. Give us the content. Yeah, that's true. And I, uh, the only reason I was able to sit through that film, uh, The Irishman, is because they didn't drink any fluids for the whole day. That's, that's the only way I could get through it. Uh, but I enjoyed the film a lot. And seeing it at a theater was nice, although I could have certainly seen it at home. That's true. 
Uh, I, uh, I, there was one HBO series that was done, and it was an interesting series uh, about the FBI investigation into some people who had rigged a McDonald's. McMillions? Uh, the McMillions. They'd rigged that, that uh, McDonald's contest. And uh, it was a very in- interesting I think they had like five parts. I could have done that in two or three, and I would have been quite happy. It was a nice story. I enjoyed it. But I thought, okay, you had to have five <laughs> episodes, so you strung it out to five episodes. So I think what Adam said is true. Uh, sometimes you, you're, you, although Martin Scorsese has a new film that's that's in the works here that I see that's, uh, uh, that hopefully will not be three or four hours. Okay, gentlemen. You got thank- a $200 million budget to make it for Apple, too, which yes. is wild. Well, yeah, you know, Apple has the money. Amazon has the money. Uh, they can, they can, and, you know, of course, Mr. Scorsese is under some pressure to deliver at $200 million, so we'll, we'll see. Gentlemen, thank you very much. It was a great discussion. Enjoyed it all. We'll be back again soon. You've just listened to the Grade A and watched the Grade A Movies podcast and video production. Adam Austin and Alec Toombs both write for gradeamovies.com. Just jumbled all together. Gradeamovies.com. You'll also see their work at filmyap.com. They're both uh, lovers of film as am I. You can find my uh, film reviews at larryinfishers.com under the Arts and Fishers podcast. I've just posted my review of Nomadland here just uh, just the day before we record this. So thank you all for watching, and I would ask you all to please be safe and be kind. <laughs>